Father, your greatness extends past anything in our lives. Lord, when, when we're on the mountaintop, great are you. Lord, when we're suffering, you're still great. You're still merciful. You're still magnificent. And Father, we would pray that, that as we open Your Word today, that we would have a glimpse of Your glory, a picture of Your magnificence, a, a sense of Your presence in a very real way. So Father, as we attune ourselves to You, May You open our hearts and our minds. May we see the things that You have for us. For each one individually, the Word from You, through Your Word, energized, enlivened by Your Spirit. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Denali Bible Chapel in Alaska was one of the churches that, that brought Christian songwriter and singer Rich Mullins to Fairbanks for a, a one-night concert. And I was familiar with many of his songs, so I was really looking forward uh, to his, his singing uh, there. And as the, the pastor at the church, I was able to have a meeting with Rich Mullins and, and uh, Beaker, if you know anything about their, their group. Barb will tell you that I told her, he's an odd duck. I said, honey, I don't know how this is going to go. Uh, eccentric, uh, an eccentric man. And, uh, and I was concerned about the concert, honestly. But when he took the stage and when he told his story and when he sang his songs and the Spirit of God was able to move through him in such a profound way that I was deeply, deeply touched. And I also had to ask the Lord for forgiveness that I would say anything about this man. I mean, he brought me before the Lord in such a way as only perhaps Sandy Patty and Larnell Harris had done before. And maybe all these names mean little to you. I don't know, but they mean a great deal to me. It was just a few years after that, that uh, before his, just before his death, Rich Mullins wrote a song entitled, I Believe. It was uh, his song related to the Apostles' Creed. And while we don't regularly recite the Apostles' Creed here, we certainly hold to it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead on the third day he rose again he ascended into heaven he is seated at the right hand of the father and he will come to judge the living and the dead i believe in the holy spirit 
the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Made a beautiful song. Perhaps you're singing it in your mind right now if you know it. Two quick notes. The word Catholic in the Apostles' Creed uh, is with a small c, always has been, is taken from the Greek word katalikos, which means universal, whole, or entire. In other words, it's a reference to the entire body of Christ, not a denomination, the universal church, as it were. But second and more important to our message this morning is the second sentence. By the way, they wrote long sentences back then. I think the whole thing is only two sentences. But anyway, the second sentence, at least in part, says this. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Judge. In this age of grace, we see Jesus as our brother, our friend, our comforter, our rescuer, deliverer. We also see Alpha and Omega, but we, the creator. But we see the Lamb of God, the good shepherd, the bread of life, the anointed one. The great high priest, the Lord of glory, Messiah, the way, the truth, the life, the word of God. We sing the song, he is altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. However, in our society, we've lost the fact that one day his kind, compassionate and loving hand of mercy will become an iron, unyielding, and steadfast hand of judgment on those who reject him. I mean, the society at large ridicules the very notion of judgment. And if they believe in God at all, they would say, surely there will be no judgment, at least not that would last more than a year or so. I mean, after all, in the span of eternity, our lives are not only finite, but they're actually quite short. I mean, seriously, how bad could you do in this tiny little speck of existence to warrant an eternal damnation or judgment? Doesn't make any sense. That's the way the world looks at this. The very subject even makes us a little bit uncomfortable. I hope you're squirming just a little bit. How can Jesus, meek and lowly, mild and holy, become a judge who rules with a rod of iron and breaks the nations and destroys the lives of the wicked? Today we're going to look into the future where that exactly happens. When the Lord Jesus Christ will judge the earth. I mean, the, the first time Jesus came, he came as a, a servant. The next time he comes, he will be victor. He came in obedience. The next time will be in command. The first time he came to sow, when he comes again, it will be to reap. 
He came in grace. He will come in wrath. Open with me to the book of Revelation. As we continue our study in the book of Revelation, we have come to the end of chapter 14. We spent three sermons in chapter 14. Chapter 14 being as important as it is. But now we finish with verses 14 through 20. The Word of God says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple of heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. For many, the notion of a loving God and brutal judgment cannot be reconciled. While the concept of God's wrath sounds strange and even revolting to the modern ear, the idea of wrath is, is nothing new. Even before Jesus preached the gospel, the talk was about wrath. I mean, when John the Baptist was preparing the way of the Lord, when he was doing his work before he baptized Jesus in Matthew 3.7, he says to the religious leaders, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. In 2 Peter, the apostle tells us explicitly that the earth will melt with fervent heat the elements being burned up in the terrible judgment of the day of the Lord that is going to fall. The book of Romans, Paul talks to us about the day of God's wrath. So whether it's John the Baptist, Peter, Paul, or even the Lord himself who predicted this multiple times, three times only in the book of Matthew, the New Testament boldly proclaims that the wrath of God is coming. Therefore, I too must proclaim it. This is true not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. In Isaiah 63, Isaiah wrote this, Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no one with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. Finally, in uh, Joel 3.9, Joel wrote, he wrote during a devastating 
plague of locusts. But what he said was, and other things too. So he said, you think the locusts and the, the fire and the drought are tough? Listen to this. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, thy mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So what John is witnessing in Revelation 14, not only is it not something new, every Hebrew knew this from their youth, from their childhood. This was something that they're all very familiar with. They weren't saying, oh, I've never heard this before. In fact, they'd heard it multiple times. The images of wrath and vengeance, particularly in the harvest with the sickle, was well known to them. I mean, even in the United States earlier, this concept was very well understood. Uh, Julia Ward Howe, for example, she wrote uh, what we know as the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Perhaps you're familiar with that song. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. John Steinbeck wrote a book entitled The Grapes of Wrath. And you may wonder, what in the world does a book about the Depression era in the United States have to do with the uh, grapes of wrath? Well, he understood, because what he said in his book is this, And in the eyes of the hungry there is a growing wrath, and the souls of the people the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. He was talking about war. He was talking about when are the poor, when are the people who are hungry going to take it by force. And if you think that's Miss the Mark, you need to understand where Julia Ward Howe got her song from. So she was sitting there watching Union soldiers marching to the south. And that's when she wrote her song. She viewed the Union soldiers as the agents of God's wrath. In the south is the grapes to be trampled. You have to understand that this notion of wrath and grapes is not new. It's not new to the Hebrew. It's not even new to us. And yet our modern, modern minds reject it almost all together. Oh, by the way, who was Julia quoting? Revelation 14. One, one, one final excursion before we look at our text. Matthew 13. It's familiar to us. I'll just briefly read it. Allow the wheat and the tares both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. 
but gather the wheat into my barn. The enemy who sowed them, being the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and I will throw them into the furnace. This is what we're seeing in Revelation 14. And in Revelation 14, uh, as we read, you see it was depicted in two ways. You had a grain harvest and you had a vintage. That is, you had a grape harvest. In both of them, there was a reaper, uh, there was a sickle, and a, uh, a reaping. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and I want to mention again today, and we'll see this play itself out, this passage is proleptic, right? You recall what that means, all right? It's a future event spoken of in the present as if it had already occurred. So that's the notion here. So what we're going to see in this grain harvest is that it's the seven bowl judgments as they are played out. That's what the reference is here for. Those seven bowl judgments are a brisk uh, sequence of terrifying worldwide events that ultimately lead to the destruction of Babylon. That is the world system. That is, in essence, the world's expression of the kingdom of darkness against God and his kingdom of light. And then there's the second part, which is uh, the vintage. When you read the text, and, and we'll read it quite carefully uh, when, we, when we get to that, you'll find that the, the battle of Armageddon is actually a misnomer. There is no battle at Armageddon. It doesn't happen. There is a gathering at Armageddon, and then there is a squishing. I mean, that's it. There is, the Lord comes. There is no fight. The, the, the Lord just destroys them. So, first let's look at the grain harvest. So we see three things here too. We see the reaper, we see the ripeness, and the reaping. And these are important little pieces because the reaper is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Verse 14, And I looked and behold a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. It, it, it's, it's interesting that it uh, doesn't say the son of man. It says a son of man, but it's clear that this is none other than Jesus Christ himself, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now the clouds, particularly when you're... When you're talking biblically, the clouds as it relates to Jesus Christ or God is a reference to the Shekinah glory that accompanies uh, him. Behold, in Daniel 7, uh, behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. So it's actually a quote from Daniel 7 right here in Revelation 14. I mean, even the New Testament speaks of Christ's second coming with the clouds. In Matthew 24, 30, he says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. In Acts 1, 
we, we're told that he was taken up in the cloud, and the scripture says that in the same way you will see him uh, return. Now, the, Christ is wearing a golden crown. And what's important about this, it's not a diadem. This is a Stephanos. This is the victor's crown. This is not, I'm sitting on my throne as king. This would be the crown that the king would wear into battle, where they were going uh, not in uh, some sort of, uh, of uh, I, I'm, I'm here uh, in terms of, a, what would it be, some sort of formal event. No, this was war. This was the Son of Man coming to conquer his enemies. And in his hand, he has a sickle. All right. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many know what a sickle is? You've, you've, all, you've all seen one, whether you know it or not. Uh, some of us have actually used a sickle. How many of you actually used a sickle? I'll ask for hands there. So a few hands go up. You know what a sickle you know, a sickle. If you've ever seen a depiction of death, that little that little stick with the, the the little curved blade on the side that he's holding, okay, that is a a sickle. We don't use sickles much anymore. In fact, I I'm not even sure you could probably you could probably buy one, but it would come with a a uh, a warning. They're sharp, and you need to know how to use them. But that's how they used to cut down all the wheat. That's how they used to cut down. That's how they used to cut grass. You know, you want to mow your, you mow your lawn. You just, you just swing it. Okay, so you have the Lord sitting with one of these things. Interestingly, in verse 15, it says, "Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe." Why did the Lord leave? the children of Israel in Egypt for 400 years. You know, the Bible tells us that in a summary statement because he had to wait for the sins of the people in the land to come to such a full point that they were irredeemable. There was nothing left. They would not, would not Turn to God, period. In other words, they were enslaved so that God's grace could be shown on a people who did not love him or care for him. So what has that got to do with this? The word for ripe doesn't mean ripe. <laughs> now, that shouldn't surprise you. Because, you know, when you go through the text, you find out a lot of these words. But that's the best way they could say it. What they should have said was, was so overripe that they had withered and dried up and were ready to blow away with the wind. That's what that word means. In other words, think about this. The Lord has waited to the point where the people have nothing to offer at all. No one of these people would turn to God if they could. You have to understand that he's long waited past the time. They're withered. They have no usefulness. God has waited 
and waited and waited. We, we always have to see that as a measure of his grace. And then thirdly, we have the reaping. And he who sat on the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. It was done. The tares are destroyed. Now, we like, you know, when you, when you look at this, it's, uh, we think of it as instantaneous. We're going to find out that it's, it takes some time for this to happen. But I love the way Scripture speaks. How many of you are familiar with Hezekiah's tunnel? It, it is probably, if in terms of waterworks, the most astounding structure of the ancient world. It's an amazing thing. And, and the Bible says, Hezekiah made a tunnel. You know, I mean, the Bible sometimes is an incredibly uh, under it understates uh, things that are amazing. It's like if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, which I am, I'm a Tolkien fan top to bottom. And uh, and Gandalf was was uh, practically destroyed. And what was his response when they asked why why he wasn't there? He said, oh, uh, I was delayed. Without a break, the next vision comes immediately to John. Not the grain harvest, but this time the grape harvest. Uh, This appears to be the actual coming of Jesus Christ at the very last judgment at Armageddon. Verse 17, it says, And another angel came out of the temple which was in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. So this is the fifth angel that we're seeing in uh, Revelation 14. And he's got a, uh, uh, the sickle, which we clearly know in context here is a, a picture of judgment. And then an angel. I, I love this next. I love this little parenthetical phrase. Then an angel, the one who has power over fire. Comes out from the altar. You recall that John said this earlier. I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging? What we see here is this altar of incense where these prayers are coming uh, from these these prayers are rising up to God in this particular case it's the martyred saints that are gathered there and their their prayers are for God to send his uh, wrath and so here comes an angel who's been dealing with that area in fact who's in charge of the incense uh, in the, the the fire there and he says put in your sharp sickle And gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. Cut them off. Sever them. Sever them from earthly existence. Now, a different word here is used for ripe. In this case, it's talking about the ripeness for judgment. The other one was talking about the ripeness for usefulness and the ability to turn to God has long since passed. This is different. These grapes are, are bursting. They are, they, are, they are bursting with the juice of evil. 
verse 19, it says, And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. That's about, it was 182 miles, which is 1,600 stadia. Now, winepress, we had the, just the wonder of living in Italy for three years. And, and there are places where this is, this is done. It's not all mechanical, you know, where you either have a, a wooden or a stone uh, a container, very large. They put the grapes in there and you, you get in there with your bare feet, clean, of course, and, uh, and you stomp on them. And you just, you know, you walk around stomping on these uh, grapes. And let me tell you something. It's a mess. Barb showed me this little YouTube thing of this little, uh, I don't know how old the girl was, probably nine months, ten months, a child, really small. With In front of her, someone had placed this giant bowl of blueberries. And she had discovered blueberries. And it was... One right after the other, after the other, she was just covered with blueberry juice, you know, and and she didn't care, you know, once you taste those big blueberries, not these little ones, you know, but these big Alaska blueberries, right? Oh, they're so, they're so good. But you have this wine press and the, there was a, a second part where the juice then would drain into and then you would collect that. And then, uh, and then do uh, whatever you wanted to uh, after, after that point. But the image, the image here is really a terrible one. Because what it is is that the splattering of the grapes become the splattering of those who are destroyed. That is blood. All the enemies of God who are still alive. All the enemies who have survived the seven seals and the trumpets and the bowls and all of those who have gathered at the final battle there at Armageddon, Armageddon, this place that's to the north in Estrelon. The battle will stretch from there, from the north, all the way to the south. In fact, south of the, the Dead Sea, according to the Bible. And this is the very moment that's described in Isaiah 63, the very moment that's described in Joel 3, as we read earlier, that's when the angel puts in the sickle and the grapes are harvested. In verse 20, it tells us that the, the wine press was trodden outside the city. The city here is Jerusalem. The prophets Zechariah, Daniel, Joel, they all tell us that this great end battle is going to occur around, but not in Jerusalem. Apparently, Jerusalem will be spared from the, the carnage. Now, I need to say a couple of things uh, before, we, uh, before we wrap the message up. Some people get wrapped around the axle regarding the number of people that it would take to make the blood flow for 182 miles, four feet or four and a half feet high, because that's about where the bridle is, right? And uh, it's, I take, here's how I take that. Number one, people who don't believe the Bible don't believe it. It's as simple as that. And uh, 
it's, it's hardly worth arguing. But I take my interpretation, because it would take about 12 billion people for that to happen. I mean, if you want to get gross about it. But for me, I take my uh, message here from Isaiah, and that is, is it's a, this battle was so large and so wide-ranging. In other words, it, from Dan to Beersheba is the way you need uh, to look at it that it would cause, as it did in Isaiah, uh, the splatter up to the horse's uh, bridle. Uh, No wonder the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. What a frightening future the world has ahead of it. And here's something that I want to say about that. And I do hope you're uncomfortable with this a little bit. Should be. We know it. We know it. They do not. What obligation does that place upon us to tell people about Jesus Christ? and the work that He has done in this age of grace, when there is still time, when the mercy seat... You know, uh, Daniel, I about came out of my seat when you said that uh, this morning. I, I wanted to start preaching right then and there because that Word, the very Word, and you know what it is, and you may not know that you know what it is, but you do. But the word that's used, propitiation, is in fact the name of the mercy seat itself. And in Hebrew, it's called the kippur, the kipporet, kipporat, however it's said. The covering. And Christ has provided that for us. In 1830, George Wilson committed armed robbery. Uh, In fact, uh, today, the crime, it would have been attempted murder because he almost almost killed uh, the man. But he also robbed the newly budding United States postal system. Federal crime, even in 1830. And so they said, yeah, You're going to court, and in 1833, they said, you're going to hang. You're going to hang. You're going to die. This this offense was such that that you're going to die. A lot of people got really upset about that. I don't know what all the extenuating circumstances were. I don't know who got to President Andrew Jackson, but somebody did. And so Andrew Jackson, President Andrew Jackson in 1833 pardoned George Wilson. He, he pardoned him. He said, that's it. You're, you're pardoned. It, it wasn't a commutation, right? It was a pardon. It didn't happen. There, there, there's none effect for you. Wilson said, what do you think Wilson said? How many of you know this story? Ever heard this story? It's an amazing thing. You can look it up. It's in the Supreme Court. Wilson said, I don't want it. 
You can take your pardon and do whatever you want to with it. But I don't want it. So, nobody had ever heard such a thing before. They thought, this is insane. This is crazy. So they sent it to the Supreme Court. Can, can you refuse a pardon? And here's the substance. Actually, this is a quote from the Supreme Court ruling. A pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential and delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and if it is rejected, we have discovered no power in this court to force it upon him. Let me put that a little clearer. The decision was this, that the person may in fact have a legitimate pardon, and while the pardon is in effect, it is the outcome of the pardon is based on the delivery, that is the acceptance of it. Otherwise, the judgment will be carried out. Chief Justice John Marshall, who was in charge of the Supreme Court at that time, remarked that while it is incomprehensible that one could reject a pardon under the pain of death, nevertheless, while the pardon stands without acceptance, the pardon's effect does not. I hope you see this, and I hope you see it crystal clear, because here it is. When Christ died on the cross, He pardoned you. I know Fanny Crosby says when you believe, you get the pardon. But you get the effect of the pardon. Everyone on earth has been pardoned by the death of Christ on the cross. He has forgiven, yet the fact is, if you do not accept it, the effect of judgment remains in place. Jesus paid for your sins. He did. Why why do you want to die for him then? Come to him today, be saved. Jesus is here, full of mercy and grace. He desires to save you, to make you whole. Come to him while it is yet day. Do not wait for the night.